0: Let us look one more time this morning at Joshua 24, and we'll start reading in verse 29. 24, verse 29. And it came to pass after these things that Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance, named Tishnasera, which is in Mount Ephraim, in the north side of the hill of Gash, and Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, and which had known all the works of the Lord that he had done for Israel. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver, and it became an inheritance of the children of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him in that hill that pertained to Phinehas, his son, which is given him in the Mount Ephraim. Let us pray one more time. Heavenly Father, we again, we thank you for your word. We thank you that throughout the centuries and, and ages you have saved it for us, that we will Love it and that we will be growing spiritually in it. Father, help me uh, to bring it. And Lord, above all, Lord, help us to have your spirit and that we might be changed by it. Amen. So we now have come to the end of the book of Joshua. And in these short few verses, we have the death for us recorded of two and the burial of three. This book began with much excitement, the promise of Israel to finally enter into that land flowing with milk and honey promised to them so long ago. And we end with death and three graves. And that is much like Genesis, by the way. It starts with that great work of God giving life, creating all things, particularly men, the crowning achievement of his own hands, the image of God. But it ends with the death of Joseph and of Jacob. And we see the same thing in Deuteronomy as Moses died there. Of course, this is all the result of the curse of the fall that has come to men. Even the very best of them. The wages of sin is death. And we are once again reminded of that in this chapter. Great leaders come and go. And the Lord supplies old old leaders, but they do die in the end. Last time, we looked at the very last words that Joshua spoke. He had given three speeches, and he redeemed his time well. He worked right until the end. He went back all the way to Abraham, to whom God has chosen to be his special son spiritually, and made a covenant with him and the promises that went with it. He reminded them of past victories so that they would not forget God. And he places them a choice. He said, you either serve the gods of this land or the ones that our forefathers worshipped, some of them anyway, or you serve God. This is a choice you have to make. And we, we looked at that. He said, do you serve the God of history, the God who you have seen at work, the God you have tasted his food, the manna, daily for 40 years. You have felt his presence in the fiery clouds and the, and the, 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 the pillar by night. Um, so he presents him with a choice. So he looks past, present, and encourages him to secure the future and to renew that covenant. Well, with one united front, they did choose the Lord, and they promised they would observe and to follow him. Now in this last section, I would like to look at four points. It's the death of Joshua, the bones of Joseph that preached, and the death of Eliezer, and a eulogy for Joshua. The death of Joshua. Well, we saw in the previous chapter mentioned that Joshua had become old and stricken in age, meaning that age had caught up with him. He looked old, and you could see it. The years of wandering in the desert had Caught up with him, this old commander, the chief of the army, had served his people well, but it had worn him out. Unlike his predecessor, Moses, of whom it said his eye was not dim and his natural force did not abate, was not like that with Joshua. God seemed to have given that supernatural strength to Moses right until he died, but not for Joshua. And the natural process of AIDS came to him, as it does to all of us, isn't it? It's a good reminder, perhaps uh, it's happening to us, more visible than others, our parents or our brothers and sisters in the Lord, or we look in the mirror, we see that one day we'll be parting with this earthly tent and that we have been granted to live but for a season. In Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon writes so nicely about it when he, when he talks about death. He says, in the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, the strong men shall bow themselves, the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look out of the window be darkened. Now he's speaking about the, deter- the, the, the deterioration of the human body. When they shall be afraid of what is high, and fear shall be in their way, and the almond trees shall flourish, probably gray hair, and the grasshopper shall be a burden. We know we're afraid more of things that we used to not be afraid of. Then he said, so the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. So it reminds us that we all are one day returning to dust. Now Joshua had lived 110 years, which is quite old in our age, but not unusual for that time earlier on in history and in verse 29 it says he was a servant of the Lord this title was given him after a life of service and we'll look at that a little bit more at the end of this message but Moses had received the same title at the end of his life and many times that title was repeated in the book of Joshua and applied to him so this term the servant of the Lord are bookends as it were to Joshua and Moses at the very first verses of this book and to Joshua at the very last verses. Joshua begins his role as chief, as army leader, right after the funeral of of Moses. And it ends with his own funeral here in this chapter. And what a great epithet or description of one's life to have it written on our tombstone or better yet, as God would think of us in that way. Servant, it's very close to the same as a slave, really, depicting that closeness to God, which flowed from a life of love, obedience, and faith that Joshua, by grace, had. I wonder what will be said at my funeral and your funeral. Will it be said he or she was a servant of God, There was a prayer request about that this morning. Most of all, of course, will it be said by the Lord himself? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Or will your funeral be about your travels, your hobbies, your successes in business or work? What is your life? I remember a message from Pastor, a long time ago, and the title was What is Your Life, a Mess or a Message? Always stuck with me. To be known as a servant of the Lord is a million times better than anything else. We have accomplices in it. Doesn't mean that we aim for great positions in life or leadership or be a missionary to the cannibals or some other great, extraordinary position in church history. Although, you might be called for that. But every Christian, from the richest to the, the poorest, is called to serve. You used to serve sin, and now you serve him who calls you into his marvelous light. It ought to be the hallmark of each one of the Lord's people. I think Pastor Paul mentioned it last week, a question. He said, have you, how have you contributed to the covenant community? Are you a servant of Christ who has redeemed you? And what does that look like? We'll look at that a little more later on. So Joshua died. The time that God had granted him was come to a close. His work was done. But what a great work he had done. And what a great journey it has been. Verse 30 there says, They buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnasera. Which is in the Mount Ephraim, on the north side of the hill of Gash. You may remember that when he was dividing the land, he did not put himself into priority and in securing a little place for himself and his family, but he picked his own portion last. And one commentator says, "This man had become great in winning so much, but took so little." It is telling that he got boarded in, buried in the borders of his own meager inheritance. But much more important, we see his life's legacy survive after his death in verse 30. Being dead, as it were, he yet spoke. The elders that outlived Joshua served the Lord and the people with him. They did what they had solemnly promised earlier in this chapter and remembered all that the Lord has done for Israel. A remembrance of God's work is a great remedy of falling prey to the flesh, the world, and the devil. And Joshua was earnest in his words to them, his final words, and they were remembered. His holy life bore fruit for a very long time afterwards. And his influence of this holy man was felt for another generation. Now, it will look different. You read the book of Judges, Opening chapter says this generation had forgotten the Lord. So the generation that followed the elders. But so far, his godly influence made a difference. So with little fanfare and mourning uh, compared to what we have seen in Joseph and Jacob, Joshua is laid to rest. Second one is the bones of Joseph that preached. So, in verse 32, we have a rather curious account of the bones of another great eminent saint. Joseph was a great example, of course, of faith in the Lord, despite incredible difficulties, betrayal of his own family, false accusation of rape, many years in jail, forgotten, it seemed like, forgotten by those he had helped. Remember the, the two imprisoned there? It's a great account. Of God's providence, and that he works out all things for his glory and his people's good. One day he is his dad's favorite, he is a prince in, in Israel. The next day he wears the robes of a slave and is sold as a chunk of meat on the market on his way to Egypt. Yet there he is faithful, he's joyful in his work and witness in his master's house that had bought him. and Through many, he ends up in in prison again, but after many twists and turns and divine favor, he is raised up from prison rags to royal ropes, and he becomes a ruler, the second to the great pharaoh. He becomes, even says he becomes a father to him. His own productive hands and wisdom feeds the known world, and he becomes the savior of it in a way. It's a great account of forgiveness, and reconciliation between God and men a very clear picture of Christ in the old testament and we went through that a few years ago you can turn with me to genesis 50 on his dying bed joseph also had a message for his brethren that were gathered around him one more time he could speak to them and that last speech to them was one of hope he is pointing them to a better friend than he had been, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Genesis 50, verse 24. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I die, God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land which I swear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and ye shall carry my bones from hence. So Joseph died being 110 years old, same as Joshua, and they embalmed him and put him in a coffin in Egypt. It's an interesting account. Joseph, in his last dying breath, speaks hope to this family. Joseph was a wise man. He was a prophet in some ways, right, with all the dreams that, that he spoke about and that came to fulfillment, he foresaw the potential difficulties that would come along the way in the years that would follow his death. There would be seasons of distress when kings and people would arise that would turn against the Israelites. But now they had that word of hope. And from one generation to the next, they would be reminded of Joseph, his word of prophecy, and their oath to him. That God would surely. Verse 24. Visit you. He would not leave them orphans. He would not forget about his people. God would come. And he would look after his people. Now Joseph doesn't come up with this. Himself. Or makes up something new here. He is well acquainted with. Jake, what Abraham was promised. When he was given. The promise of the land. But he also knew. It would be 400 years before they would go back there. And what a rich source of joy and patience and strength was the word of God to Joseph when he was in those years of trouble, but also to the Israelites afterwards. When all seemed kind of dark for all those hundreds of years, we, you know, God was silent, as it were. They had this promise And he makes his brother's promise that if they were going to go to Egypt, and when that great time would come, that they would take his casket and his bones with him. You know, he could have asked for a pyramid, a great mausoleum, maybe an eternal flame or something like that, like we do with statesmen that die in our day. He had that all at his disposal. And he had, of course, the favor of the king when he died. But he did not. He wanted to be buried in the land of promise. That place where God had revealed himself to his forefathers. Egypt was always a picture of sin, of paganism. And like his father Jacob, he did not wish to be buried there. Now imagine with me for a moment, one or two hundred years after his death, The conditions are getting worse. The people have long forgotten about Joseph, how he saved Egypt, and new kings come and arise, and they slowly are treated very badly and become slaves. Somewhere there in a corner in Gosen, maybe an Israelite house or shed, stood that coffin, solemnly waiting for its removal. It was a sign of hope for the people. A coffin of promise, a word of God, was connected with it. And God will one day come. And his bones will move one more time, they could tell their kids. He has been there for hundreds of years, they could say. It's looking old. His flesh has long decayed. But have faith, trust in God. Remember all that happened to him. Remember all the promises to our fathers. Now Joseph was a 110-year-old, so about 300 years later, a lot of pain, a lot of misery, and seeming hopelessness, finally, after the first Passover, this coffin, these bones are on the move. I can just imagine the people standing there, kids, and they say, look, Joseph is on the move. His coffin stood here for centuries. Praise God. It is the time of his visitation. What Joseph spoke about was true. His word came to be. In Exodus, Moses writes about this, and he said, He wrote, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, which he had straightly sworn to the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and ye shall carry up my bones away hence with you. All along the way, through the Red Sea, the journey, 40 years in the desert, wandering, where they had to break up tent and take it up again, the bones of Joseph were present. Someone was looking after this. Probably Ephraim and Manasseh would imagine they were in charge of these bones. And yet, Joseph being long dead, he preached a message, when all looked hopeless at times, that he would end up in the land and with other many infallible proofs, of course, of God that he had given them. The writer in the New Testament, in chapter 11, writes his famous long list of the Old Testament saints and their acts of faith. He picks one or two things from from Moses and Noah, Enoch, David, even Rahab, the harlot whom we have looked at in this book. But he writes about Joseph also. Now, when you think about his life, There are many things he could have spoken about, isn't it? In fact, all of his life was kind of lived out as an act of faith in the Lord. And see he never gave up, he never complained, he never murmured, and he did not hold grudges or repaid evil for evil. But the one thing that stood out to the writer of Hebrew, what was it? It was this wish. Hebrews 11:22 By faith Joseph when he died made mention of the departing of the children of Israel and gave commandment concerning his bones. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 also makes mention of Jacob and Joseph being buried back in the land. So Joseph is finally laid to rest and he received his long delayed burial. And Israel fulfilled that promise of that oath made to him by the forefathers so long ago. And there he waits another great day when saint and sinner will be resurrected at that great trumpet call when Christ returns. And he is buried in that very same place that his great grandfather had bought. Thirdly, we see the death of the high priest. Another death, and another burial, this time of Eliezer. Eleazar was the third son of Aaron. His name means help, helper, help of God. And he had helped in the division of the land as well with Joshua. Um, Aaron was a great help to Moses, and Eliezer was a great help to Joshua. And, of course, he was really the most important person in Israel. He was that high priest that earthly mediator that earthly helper between God and men and he had followed in his father's footsteps numbers 2028 20, says and Moses stripped Aaron of his garments and put them on Eleazar his son and Aaron died there in the top of the mountain and Moses then Eleazar came down from the mountain this high priest would enter once a year into the holies of holies drawing near to God he would represent his people and their sin there and his own and he would bring that sacrifice on their behalf but death comes to all and he also has to lay aside his ropes his priestly robes, in exchange for grave clothes and is laid to rest it is appointed unto man once to die and even for this high priest, even in that promised land, that land of milk and honey, where they had looked forward to so much, death is still present. Of course, the office and the person of the high priest points us to our heavenly high priest, the one that ever lives to make intercession for us. The ones whose blood, his own blood, once for all, has removed our sin from us. The one that himself, not an animal or a lamb or anything else, was offered. But he offered himself up to satisfy the divine justice of God. The God-man, our Emmanuel, fully representing God and fully representing man, spotless and without sin. Hebrews 7, 25, 26. Wherefore he is able to save them to the utmost that come unto God by him. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and is made higher than the heavens, who needed not daily, as those high priests, Eleazar, to offer up sacrifices first of his own sins and then for the people's, but he did once when he offered up himself. So the end of the book of Joshua is two deaths and three funerals. But each of these deaths and burials, there is hope, there is promises fulfilled, and they bring much honor and glory to the Lord, isn't it? Whenever you walk you go to a funeral or you walk through a graveyard, you're reminded of your own mortality. This week I was walking through the Lacombe graveyard. And it's right by my house. So it's, it's not like we always look up graveyards. Uh, and I saw a lady that had lived for three centuries. Or her, her grave, rather. And she had, was born in 1896. And she died in 2001. That's a long life, right? She could, she could remember when she was three and a half. She could remember that century she was born in. And then the ones that followed. But it is appointed. Appointed unto men wants to die, no matter who we are and as we see in this book. Have you then placed your trust in that great high priest that we read about? That God has appointed for you and me to escape the wrath of God. Have you by faith hold on to that great atonement, there is no other atonement, that great person for the complete forgiveness for all of your sin you know, sooner or later, people will gather for your funeral. They will sing a few songs. There will be a eulogy and a gather around your grave and you'll be laid to rest and go home. And whether we like it or not, life moves on. Where will you be? Where will you spend an unchangeable destiny? Think about that. Young people, think about it while it is yet time. We hear of young people dying, accidents. Think about your life. And if you have that great Savior, rejoice in that great Redeemer and live a life that shows that is the case. Finally, a eulogy for Joshua. At the close of this book of Joshua, it is named after him, and his name means in the Greek Jesus Let us think in a broad look at his life, a eulogy as it were, and let us look how he exemplified many fruits of the Spirit and examples in contact. That would be a great example for us to be reminded of. As mentioned earlier, it was not for nothing that he was called the servant of God, and something that every Christian should be known for. We are called by the Lord Jesus himself. He says in John twelve twenty six, If any man serve me, let him follow me. And where I am, there also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you ought to wash the feet of one another. I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily I say unto you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither is he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Paul many verses I could pick, but Paul are reminded of our calling and election when he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath foreordained that we should walk in them. Often Service translates into serving one another in the name of God. So, what were the things that stood out in the life of Joshua? What made him such a great servant? And I'm sure I haven't picked them all, but I picked five of them. First of all, and we see it right when he first comes into the scene, he was a faithful servant. To Moses. He was by his side for 40 years. He led the battles and he knew his place. He did not seek a greater position than he had been called to. Moses trusted in him with that leadership of the army. He was a young man at that time, but he was a great aid and helper to Moses. He was willing to submit before God had placed him into that greater position where Moses That Moses once held after his death. All of life, he was a humble man, and he had a life that is submitted to God. Secondly, we see him, as we have highlighted many times, and it comes out in all his action, that he was a man of simple faith in the word of God. Straightforward. Faith in his word, faith in his promises. He did not waver or cast doubts on the word of God. Now, in comparison, with Jake, Jacob and Abraham, for instance, they sometimes devise their own plan. Remember with Hagar, and Hagar had a child, and Abram said that Ishmael might live. In other words, let it be through Ishmael. Sarah is too old. Abram was a great man of faith, but he had his seasons of doubt. Similar with Jacob, long seasons of doubt and, and plain unbelief. It comes out strongly, that faith. When Joshua is sent out as a spy with the 12 others, and he dares to go against the majority report, as it were, 10 of them come back and go like, no, no, this is not going to work. They speak as though they're atheists, but not Joshua and Caleb, of course. They were bold. They stood against the nation, even though they were ready to stone him. This was not easy. There was not just some friendly debate happening. What did he say? If the Lord delights in us, then we will, he will bring us into this land. He'll give it unto us as a land which floweth of milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord. Neither fear ye the people of the land. He Spoke word of faith, for they are bred to us. Their defenses departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. He went back to what was promised earlier. He believed the word of God. He had a strong faith. He believed God. And he sought to teach others to do the same thing. By example and by his word. And in this way, he sought to protect, protect the flock against the wiles of the devil. You know, unbelief is a terrible thing. And he knew that. He had seen it, of course, in the desert. And as anything else in this book that we have seen, the principle of faith and works. Strong faith in God, strong faith in God's total unrivaled sovereignty and obedience that is required. Thirdly, and of course at the bottom of all of these is is faith. He was fearless and he was courageous against great obstacles that came his way. You recall at the beginning of the book, he was many times in the first two chapters there called to be strong and to be courageous. From the outset, he was bold when he stepped into that river Jordan. When he circled Jericho seven times, think think what a fearful person would say. They probably say, "Well, no, no, we'll be sitting ducks. They're going to shoot us from the. They've got seven days. They're going to shoot us from the walls. We'll be too tired. This is too difficult. Let us just fight." And when they lost the battle at Ai. It was humiliating. The nation was defeated. He went back to the camp and dealt with the sin of Achan. He executed judgment from God on him and his family. He did not ask the people, uh, what shall we do? Or he may have thought, well, this would be an unpopular move. Maybe they're going to come after me. He did what God described. Difficult as it was. And this incident was very Hard on him, it had grieved him greatly. He was more uh, worried about the, the honor and glory of God than his own comfort and potential unpopularity with some of these moves. It took courage for him to command the sun to stand still and in faith to call upon God to do just such a great miracle to win this battle. To courage for him to circumcise the men of Israel the second time in chapter 5, likely unpopular, I would think, but he obeyed anyway. And when he was with Moses on top of that mountain, we know he hadn't participated in the sin of the golden calf because he was there somewhere on the sides of the mountain with Moses serving his master. Fourthly, he did not complain or grumble against God. As, as great as Moses was, and he was a great man, one thing at times he was given to was to complain about the people, questioning whether God was wise enough to pick him as a servant and so on. Um, um, and we don't see that in Joshua's life. He did not grumble about the sheep that he was looking after. He knew his calling. He didn't grumble about God's plan. He did not grumble when he had to wait for 40 years in the desert while the generation around him died. Imagine that, 40 years. The sad thing of that is his own family was there, right? His own family did not enter into the promised land. He suffered the consequences of sin of others. He was, as we generally are when we don't complain, a very patient man. He waited on God and while he did that he served God faithfully. He did not fret about the timing of God's plan as you and I are prone to do. The ton- conquest took a long time but yet he served the people right up till the end. And Five, he aided the people in the worship of God. That's probably the most important one. He set up the tabernacle, ate it that, and he made sure the law of God was read. We read one time he put the law of God on, on a stone monument for all to read. They would read it together on Mount Ebal. And he also did that by the way of the many memorial stones that he put up. He wanted to remember what God has done. So the generation that would follow would see the great works of God. And everywhere they would go for a walk they would see these tremendous stones and tremendous memorials. He was committed to the word of God and the memory of the works of God so that people could rejuvenate their faith. It was a life submitted to God. In the lives of these three men, we see great reflections of the Redeemer that would come the Lord Jesus, our great high priest, that came into this world of sin and he takes us to the promised land through the Jordan into the gospel state, as it were, into heaven itself. He fights our battles for us as the captain of our souls and shows us the way. And he has promised never to forsake us Or to leave us. Who has died for us. Who has gone to the grave for us. Whose grave we don't visit. Whose bones we don't carry around. Because as we read this morning. In our call to worship Psalm 16. His body did not see corruption. The grave is empty. He won the ultimate victory over death and hell. We saw that earlier in Genesis. In Deuteronomy and Joshua. All those books. They end with Death. But what do the Gospels all end with? Life and victory and hope. The grave is empty. And Christ will one day call your bones and mine from the grave. He is the one that says, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and have the keys of death and hell. Paul writes, and I'll close with this. He said, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord apply to our hearts the words of this book. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again that all your word All your books and all your sayings point to that great Redeemer, the Lord Jesus, of whom we've sung about, Lord. We have prayed to him. We've seen him in his word. Father, I pray that all of us here would know him, would have gone there for refuge, no matter our sin, our state in life, Lord, our age, Lord, that we go to him as that great burden lifts. Father, help us open our eyes if we haven't seen it yet. And if we have, Lord, make us great servants of such a Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.